The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is March 11th, 2021, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff of the USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the 2021 Perspectives Lecture Series. We welcome listeners tonight from all over the world to the live stream lecture event, and we are excited to welcome a small socially distanced audience right here in our lecture hall. For those of you listening live, remember you, that you can go to submit a question for our question and answer at the end of the program by either emailing to the main USAHEC email address or by sending us a note in Facebook Messenger. Just search USAHEC in Facebook and send us a message. That's U-S-A-H-E-C. The USAHEC and the U.S. Army War College sponsor the Perspectives Lecture Series, which is a seasonal lecture program that provides a discussion of current and historical topics critical to the understanding and practice of strategic leadership. Consisting of a spring and fall season of four lectures each, perspective seasons highlight a particular theme important to the study of the military profession. This season's theme is ethics of warfighting. So ladies and gentlemen, it's now my great honor to introduce tonight's speaker, Colonel Retired Reed Bonadonna. He served in the Marine Corps for 20 years, has taught at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, as well as U.S. Merchant Marine Academy and is a senior fellow for the Carnegie Council of Ethics and International Affairs and is the author of numerous books and, and articles on the profession of arms. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome uh, Colonel Reed Bonadonna. Thank you, Colonel. Shake your hand. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for coming. Spectacles. Thanks for the kind introduction, Carl. Uh, very good to see you all. Uh, I'm going to pause partway through the lecture uh, just to see if anybody has any interim questions or comments, kind of a, a standing, standing break in place, and then I hope we'll have some time for, uh, for longer discussion at the, uh, at the end. So in this talk, I'll be arguing that the training, education, and above all, the experience of officers can prepare them to function in a visionary role. I will also be promoting the idea that this role could result in a more moral and effective military while also enabling officers to contribute to the civil society, indeed, to the idea of civilization itself, both as serving officers and in retirement. Officers ought to view themselves, say I, as more than mere managers of violence or doctrinal deliverers of ordinance. They have been and ought to be the bearers of important values and knowledge. Officers are both the least and the most civilized of persons in that they serve in places where laws and civility no longer compel or restrain but in which officers are expected to uphold standards of conduct and to serve their society without stint or limit. Officers, when on campaign, walk the weird wall at the edge of civilization. They have a sense of how precious a thing civilization is because they've seen how fragile. Like soldier poets, soldier philosophers throughout history, we come home with inspirational and sometimes cautionary stories to tell. The categories of visionary thought, which are far from exhaustive, that I'll discuss tonight include thinking of the past, death and the officer, the ethical turn, an officer's dreams, peace, and the officer of the future. To start with thinking about the past. The military profession is one with a long memory, although perhaps it is never quite long enough since forgetfulness and selective memory are as much a part of our human condition as our accurate and informative memory. Officers collectively participate in a conversation with the past, the insistence on the memory of past military conflicts has even struck some as excessive, a fetishization of military symbols and memorials. The scale of efforts at military recall may reflect an understanding of the evanescence of military acts, of the lives cut short, and of the welcome gaps between conflicts that can promote a harmful forgetfulness of the grim facts of war, even on the part of soldiers and veterans themselves. As Shakespeare's Henry V puts it, old men forget. In their book, Thinking in Time, The Uses of History for Decision Makers, Richard Neustadt and Ernest May advance several ways in which a memory of the past can be valuable. One idea is that of thinking in time streams, and their leading example is George C. Marshall. The authors suggest that Marshall could see events as they were happening in an historical perspective. 
Marshall was a man of wide reading, but more than this, he thought of history as a living, continuing process. This may have been inspired by an experience he had in World War I as a staff officer in France, taking a book in Roman history, on Roman history from the shelf in the French house in which he was billeted, Marshall realized that he was in the same part of France once a scene of operations for Caesar's legions. Marshall's ability to think from an historical perspective allowed him to formulate as early as 1943 some of the ideas for what would become the Marshall Plan for European recovery. Marshall spared a part of his busy mind for the problems of the peace that all were working towards but few could envision. The failures of the peace following World War I and the conflicts of an ancient empire were part of the context within which he saw his own unfolding time so clearly. The memory of war is not limited to officers, but officers have a special responsibility to be the repository of an historical knowledge of armed conflict, both as part of their professional function within the armed forces and their role in the larger society. Officers must cultivate an institutional memory of the nature of armed conflict, which they can make available and express to their fellow citizens and to the civil leadership in, terms of, in times of crisis. Military force is a very dramatic and very dramatic form, direct and dramatic form, of power that can be intoxicating. To someone with only a shallow understanding of armed force, it can seem an all too easy solution to a variety of problems. A panacea satisfying both in its employment and its effects. But military force as an instrument of policy is inherently flawed, and a tool of ill omen. The officer is in a position to understand this reality through study, training, and experience. War is human relations gone terribly wrong on a large scale, and it's where things go wrong, a lot. It is the officer's role to lay out clearly not just the technical aspects of the military options, but their frankly unpredictable long-term consequences, maybe especially those of historical dimensions, beyond the range of conventional or effects-based planning. The temptation to use the flawed military instrument has led to too many dubious decisions, some of recent memory, but many more remote in time and too easily forgotten. Wars begun in error and conducted with increasing blindness and vengefulness have shaped much of the current state of affairs around the globe. In planning the wars of the future, the consequences of an action must be considered, but despite the long Western tradition of just war, which calls on belligerents to weigh the chances of victory and the proportionality of gains and losses, these factors are very difficult to predict or control. More bewildering are the long-term post-bellum post consequences. This should add to a deep, reluctance to use armed force unless absolutely necessary and with clear objectives. Unfortunately, perception can also influence the occasions when force appears to be indicated. The demonstrated willingness to use force might deter adversaries when the mere possession of military might does not. Like so much else, the benefits of history are best undertaken in a spirit of open-mindedness and balance. Pursued in this way, military history can be an enabler of clear thinking about problems of organization, warfighting, and leadership. This kind of reading is perhaps best understood as imparting a general sense, even an instinct, for the dimensions and context of military problems. As argued by Marine officer Olivia Gerard, quote, the lessons from history turn out not to be particulars, but instead general properties of how to think, how we should construct our will. Reading for leadership may be thought of as a form of habituation like any other, a developing familiarity and preference for certain types of behavior over others, for service over selfishness, for the diligent over the dilatory, for the humane over the unfeeling or mechanical. History tells us that efforts to control war and to mitigate its savagery have met with mixed results. Still, the lesson of history is not to cease efforts to control war, but for these efforts to be object an objective for officers and others. The officer looks to the past for the best it has to offer, for moral lessons and exemplars, for heroes and inspiration. At their best, Soldiers have upheld civilized values under the direst conditions. They have contributed to the collective memory of humanity in the form of art, idea, and narrative. They have sometimes, to quote A. He Hausman, saved the sum of things for pay. Michael Hausman, citing historian Jacob Burkhart, reminds us that the study of history is not just to make people, quote, clever for the next time, it is to make them wise for all time, unquote. To this end, the officer must be a student of history and a careful observer and recorder of her own personal past, of the history she sees being played out during her career of service and her lifetime. Next section, death and the officer. Like the priest and the physician, the military officer has a professional relationship with death. 
The two great constants of war may be said to be death and leadership, and the officer is much concerned with both. Military operations may not always be specifically aimed at killing the enemy, although they sometimes may, but they almost always have the at least indirect objective of doing some enemy soldiers to death. Soldiers are not the only ones who die in war. Civilian deaths are nearly inevitable and they are countenanced to varying degrees as collateral damage or as the regrettable but tacit objective of weakening civilian morale and productive capacity. A military officer requires of our own soldiers that they risk and perhaps even sacrifice their lives. Finally, officers must often risk their own lives in the furtherance of the mission. The highest military honors are reserved for those who take the biggest risks, even for those who seem to invite death. Death is, to quote the Scottish officer Jock Sinclair in the film Tunes of Glory, the soldier's stock in trade, the coin of military operations, which sooner or later some must pay. How to think or talk about death in the military community. Going into battle, most soldiers want to believe in the possibility of their own intact survival, along with victory and the worthiness of their cause. Reasoned reassurances on this point, not empty promises or dismissals, are a valuable part of military communication. Most people have their own, to quote Wordsworth, intimations of immortality. For many, although not all, these are religious. For some, immortality may be children or family or an idea of infinitude, the universe, of the survival and slow progress of humanity. For a few, the military unit itself may provide a kind of immortality in symbols and stories. J. Glenn Gray, author of The Warriors, Reflections on Men in Battle, said that comradeship could be a kind of immortality, creating the conditions for self-sacrifice. In my own experience, I recall a conversation with a stocky, much-tattooed platoon sergeant in Iraq. His platoon had just helped to fight the Battle of Ad-Nazaria, one of the first engagements of the war. Nineteen Marines from one company his battalion had been killed in a single day, and it had been a rude awakening for many of the unblooded Marines who were involved. Undaunted, the platoon sergeant feelingly remarked that the Marine Corps had been reborn on that day. He grieved for the deaths, but it may be truthful to say that what mattered to him most was the Corps, the community, and individual losses less so. Are officers and other military people better prepared for death when it comes, having been readied and maybe reconciled to death as a form of professional obligation? Samuel Johnson said that people accorded a special status to sailors and soldiers because, quote, mankind reverenced those who have got over fear, which is so general a weakness. Is it true that soldiers have at least accommodated themselves to the fear of death more than most people? Possibly, if not necessarily. Like the sense of history and tradition that can be part of a soldier's equipment, in fact, related to it, the acceptance of death is a matter of individual choice and reflection more than nominal professional membership. Officers perhaps can acquire a greater appreciation of death, but it is not simply theirs by right. It must be the result of experience and reflection. On the other hand, such an enhanced understanding need not await seeing people die in battle. Officer and military historian Richard Holmes records how his death, quote unquote, as a company commander in a training exercise, led to his reflections on the nature of war and the appeals of writing about war. One of the most sublimely appealing artistic evocations of the relationship between death and the officer is the beautifully photographed feature film, A Matter of Life and Death, 1946, starring David Niven and Kim Hunter. Niven plays a World War II British aviator who is forced to jump, no parachute, from his burning aircraft. Improbably and even miraculously, he survives the jump and wades from the sea to encounter Hunter, an American soldier, on her bicycle at the beach. He later experiences strange symptoms to include hallucinations. It turns out that a mistake has been made. Niven was supposed to die, and he must justify his survival on Earth before a heavenly tribunal. I should throw out spoiler alert. If anybody hasn't seen the uh, series, I'm afraid you in the live audience have, have no hope, but if any, anybody in the uh, video audience wants to, uh, wants to mute at this point to uh, not, not have the ending given away, go ahead. What saves him is Hunter's love and her willingness to die in his place. They both survive, and with the war coming to an end, they can look forward to long lives together. The film allegorizes the soldier's intimate relationship with death. Combat aviator Niven's survival is an escape from death but so is every return from a combat mission. Having lain down his life, he has got it back again, for now. Fate and the enemy may have another chance to kill him, but they have missed this opportunity. The experience of the film has an added dimension that the viewer knows that Niven was a Sandhurst graduate who walked away from a promising film career in 1939, no questions asked, to rejoin the British Army. A matter of life and death, the plot thickens. 
Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> I'll try to move around a little more. Maybe some side straddle hops while I'm up here. Uh, uh, a Matter of Life and Death was his first post-war film and his personal and professional reprieve. The former officer assumes a kind of immortality when he considers the future state of his service, country, and humankind after the flag-covered coffin and signing of taps that waits for all. She should take no comfort in the fact that his future does not seem to be terribly bright. There are too many scenes of conflict, throwing shadows that are long and lengthening. The officer may make a mental contribution by thinking hard and fearlessly about the future of armed conflict. Other potentially even greater existential threats may lie in the encroachments on humanity made by the machine, the computer, artificial intelligence, the omniscient all-seeing eye of surveillance, climate change, technological developments in communications and weapons technology, the spread of adversarial, even apocalyptic ideas, pandemic, and the impoverished, unstable, state of much of the globe offers some frightening possibilities. Along with these dire signs, there are hopeful indications too. Technologies that heal and feed, the spread of knowledge, a rising worldwide standard of living, and even the prospect that the hearts of men and women grow wiser and more tolerant given the chance. If the officer in the field exercising moral leadership is indeed a mini philosopher, as she has been described by philosopher Gregory Reichberg, perhaps return home, she becomes a metaphysician an ontologist laying out the boundaries of human selfhood because her experience has given her an insight into the nature of, humanities, of humanity sometimes pared down to the bare essentials, and also of people at their most selfless and willing to merge their identity with that of a community of souls. We may even come to acknowledge the humanity of our enemies. His motives, although finally human and recognizable, may be clouded over by cultural differences and manipulated out of shape by those with an interest in struggle or a twisted desire to control others and have someone else do their fighting. These wicked motives may not be absent on our own side, even within ourselves. Even as we confront our own demons, like J. Glenn Gray, we may think that while war and military service have not changed us enough, properly understood, they may change us for the better. The ethical turn. For the individual, military service and leadership and their civil afterlife often involve a turn towards ethics. The armed forces today place considerable stress on the ethical aspects of military service through instruction in leadership, military ethics, various sets of core values. Very often, however, the reality falls far short of the ideal. In fact, military service can blunt or misdirect the ethical sense. About a year and a half ago, I attended the annual McCain Conference on Military Ethics at the U.S. Naval Academy. The subject was moral injury and moral virtue. At the conference, the prevalence of moral injury, or MI, was a major concern. Why were so many service members reporting that they had witness or a party to dubious or very reprehensible behavior, leading in some cases to the undermining of their own moral foundations, to feelings of apathy and helplessness? One speaker cited an estimate that between 14 and 28 percent of Operation Iraqi Freedom veterans have been responsible for a noncombatant death. How can this be prevented? Many theories were advanced, but a few simple ideas stood out. Character is not enough to prevent the actions that lead to MI, and that, of course, can have other even more serious and immediate effects like the death of innocence. The enforcement of standards is often required to restrain misconduct, especially in extremist conditions like combat. Clear-cut rules of behavior need to be invoked and repeated. I came away from that conference with a sense that, an that the American military needed an explicit moral code. Recent events have renewed this belief. White supremacist groups have been able to recruit in all branches. Some of those who attacked the Capitol on 6 January were, shamefully, military veterans, reserve, or active members. The idea that racist and fascist ideology is compatible with military service, even that it complements service in the American Armed Forces, has been allowed to take hold and grow. A positive way for the Armed Forces to combat this unacceptable view is to adopt a code that spells out the ethical requirements of military service. And it looks like the first five are already up on the screen. Uh, I'm not sure how long they've been there, but I'll, 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 I'll allow you to look, look at those. And I'll, I'm proposing a straw man. There are actually a, a total of 10 rules, so these are the first five uh, for, for consideration. I'll let you have a look at these. I'll go on. The code would apply to all members of the Armed Forces Defense Department. It may be said to reflect the U.S. Constitution, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the law of armed conflict, UCMJ, Service Corps Values, and Code of Conduct, along with other documents pertaining to ethics in the military, such as the Joint Ethics Regulation. Why don't we get the second slide up there? Uh, next, next five. 
The code would serve as doctrine, as a bridge of understanding concerning the most vital top 10 ethical underpinnings of military service. Perhaps most important, it would be a pledge by service members not to waver or compromise in matters of ethics, but to remain faithful to the American people and to the high ideals that should sustain us in times of peril and adversity. Greater investment in command attention in the practice of ethics could yield benefits in the areas of war crimes, PTSMI, command climate, sexual assault harassment, political extremism, etc. In the last category especially, the challenge of ethics are related to one of cognition and epistemology. We are living through what, what, what one writer has described as an epistemological crisis, a crisis over truth and clear thinking, a regard for the outrageous and a neglect of real knowledge. But to cite Pascal, thinking well is the first principle of ethics. So before I go on to the next part, I'm a little over halfway through uh, of my lecture, I, I thought I would uh, invite a, uh, a standing, standing break in place here. And if anybody wants to uh, get the mic and, and ask any in, in, interim questions or make any interim comments uh, uh, about the subject, I'd be glad to, to, to pause for a couple of minutes and, and, and entertain that. Anyone, anyone, first of all, from the live audience gets, gets, a, gets a first, first crack for making the trip out here. General? <laughs> Thank you for your presentation, and I'm just reflecting on these 10 uh, sort of principles or elements of a code I think that you have here, and, you know, I'm, I'm Reflecting that we may not lack for codes to help guide our, you know, fr from the oath that you take as either a commissioned officer or an enlisted soldier, or the code of conduct, and in and, and so, so it's, you know, ascribing to this versus how, how you um, over time continue to inculcate service members, officers enlisted alike um, to internalizing these things. Um, strikes me as a particular challenge. I don't know if you have a thought or a reflection on that. Well, yeah, I think obviously the um, simply publishing this code would, would have to be just, just the beginning. It, it would have to then become part of uh, a command climate of instruction, part of, part of a PME, a, a topic for, for discussion and, and not just uh, sort of ramming down the throat and, uh, and, 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 and memorization. But uh, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for the uh, uh, constitutional oath. Um, uh, I have to say that uh, for most of my service, I, I misunderstood the import of the constitutional oath. And, and it was insufficient in my case, and I think in the case of a lot of people, to really drive home some of the ethical uh, ideas of, related to military service, which I've tried to encapsulate in, in, in these 10. These are, these are more explicit, I think, uh, uh, invocations of, of some of the of the ideas which inhere in the Constitution and some of the other documents that are out there. So I, I, I think there's some merit. Uh, and I, I, by the way, I sent these 10 to the Stockdale Center at the Naval Academy too. They, they say they're somewhat interested and uh, maybe uh, you know, they might be willing to, 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 to push them a bit or at least sit around and talk about them. But uh, uh, so I do think that, uh, that a, a code like this could have some, could have some utility in, in, what we're, in what we're trying to do. I also noticed that you know, some one of the radical groups that was participating in the assault on the Capitol, a group that contains a fair number of military veterans, they call themselves oath takers. You know, by their lights, they are sticking to their constitutional oath in a in, in a way that others are not. And, and, and this is this is obviously for us a, a mistaken belief. I think most of us would feel that way, but um, uh, but it's been allowed to. Uh, 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 to take hold in the minds of these uh, of these service members who you know who, who come who come out of their service who complete their service still with these with these bad ideas on unchallenged in them and and uh, and now they have this, uh, uh, this this additional sense of privilege and entitlement to to sound off on these subjects. So um, anyway, I'll, I'll probably continue to try to uh, uh, write about these and, and sell them. 
Just whoever's next, yeah. Sir, we have one question from the, uh, from the internet. This is actually from uh, law enforcement asking uh, if you could uh, give a couple minutes to how this might reflect on our uh, on the law officers, uh, law enforcement uh, leadership in, in that realm. Hmm. I really had, I hadn't thought about that at all. Um, one, one thought that I, that I did have is that, uh, you know, law enforcement is going through a major crisis in the country right now. And, and, and this is partly a crisis of confidence in, in people in law enforcement, which has taken, taken a major downturn in the last few years. And they, they are, I think by, by the actions of a few, they are surrendering having to surrender a considerable amount of their professional autonomy uh, because they have not effectively policed their own ranks and enforced ethical standards along with the other requirements of being a police officer like, you know, pistol marksmanship and, and you know, uh, driving a car through crowded city streets at high speed and, and, and things like that, which are, which, which are important too. So, uh, and, and just, you know, as a, as a warning for us, just in the last couple of months, according to a, a Military Times poll, the details haven't been published yet, but there was an article on it, the uh, regard for the military just took a, uh, took a quick, uh, quick downturn. And uh, uh, I'm not throwing out the, uh, the, the, the panic button that we are going to follow in the footsteps of law enforcement and their crisis and confidence from the American people, but... Um, I, I, I do think we need, we, we, we have paid too little mind of this and, 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 and more command attention needs to be, uh, needs to be paid. I'm, I'm glad to see that in, in particular, the suppression and screening for uh, people with extreme violent white supremacist beliefs seems to be getting a lot of attention, but I think, but I think along with that, uh, an effort on the, on the ethical front it should be should be part of that picture, not just screening or enforcement or or discharging people or sending to the brig if they uh, you know engage in these acts, but but uh, across the force, uh, 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 restating and reinforcing the 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 particularly ethical requirements of being a soldier or being a police officer. Uh, th these these are sometimes missing in the uh, uh, in our in our in our rush to to inculcate other kinds of other kinds of skills and abilities which which people need. One more. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Lieutenant Colonel Ivanov, Bulgarian Army. Uh, thank you for the insightful uh, lecture thus far. Uh, my question is related to your statement that uh, the leaders need to make decisions for their soldiers and themselves uh, to, uh, to go to war, to go to that. Uh, as future senior leaders, as we consider ourselves the Army War College uh, uh, students, my question is how we can preserve this uh, ethical alignment and moral integrity that you talk about at the levels that we occupy when we are supposed to make decisions or propose uh, military response options to our uh, senior leaders for our nations to go to war uh, and uh, send the soldiers to death, uh, given the fact that we will not be at the position anymore to, to look them into the eyes or uh, we will not be in the position ourselves to go to death. Uh, how, how can we keep this integrity and will this moral code that you propose uh, be sufficient to these uh, senior levels? Roger. Thank yeah, you. I mean, I really think there needs to be much more a conversation in the, in the services on this, uh, on this subject, not just, uh, not just rote learning or, again, you know, ramming it down people's throats, but uh, more, of a, more of a dialogic uh, and uh, discursive approach to, to ethics because it, because it is not, it, it's a subject on which it's pretty hard to, to, to dictate to people, people don't like to be dictated to on these matters. So I think there should be a discussion. I think there should, I think there should also be some some clear some clear guidelines that you know if you want to be one of us, see these things here. You have to believe in them all, and and, and you, you have to subscribe to these these baseline ethical ideas. And let's talk about what they mean and how they apply in practice. But uh, uh, but. But still, there are, there, there, are, there are certain ethical requirements you take on when you become an officer. And one of, one of the things that, that, that struck me is uh, General, General Miley, you know, went through, I think, and, and to his credit, he, uh, he realized this at some point, but he went through a period of confusion about where his obligations 
resided when it came to his uh, cooperation and participation in, in what was a, a partisan political event. And I think most, most of you know what I'm, what I'm talking about here. And later on, he recanted of that and made other statements which clearly reflected that he had given more thought to this and was now on surer ground, for example, with his, his own relationship to the constitutional oath, which he, which he reiterated a, a, a couple of times during the, during, during the transfer of power. So um, the fact that this very smart, highly professional, uh, the senior uh, officer in you know, the entire shooting match has this period of confusion about his his ethical responsibilities in, in, in a given incident, I think, is, is, is one of the things that's, that's telling me we need to talk more about this top-down and uh, uh, four-star to E1. Uh, uh, anyway. Can I... Thank you for your question, sir. Th th thank, thank, thank you for all the questions. It was great. Uh, can I press on? Finish up. Okay, and more, more discussion at the end. Um, yeah. Uh, so, next section, peace and the military officer. Officers spend their professional lives studying and preparing for war. Many will experience armed conflict firsthand, and nearly all have the opportunity to understand war in a way denied most civilians. As military professionals, they occupy a community in which there is an ancestral and communal knowledge of war. But officers should also think about peace. The ultimate challenge for the officer as visionary is perhaps the creation of a world at peace at least intermittently and perhaps someday perpetually. The officer's understanding of the dynamics of war gives her insight into the creation of peace. Wars do not grow out of nothing. The prelude to war, the continuation and escalation of violence, the preparation for the next war that often seems to begin even before the cessation of the last, these are familiar phenomenon, phenomena to military officers. Through experience, officers know that war is not merely the absence of peace, that the suppression of the rights of individuals and groups of people is a formula for war, that tyrants must wage war externally and on their own people to justify their tyranny and to remain in power. The long human habit of war, theories and theories about the, various theories about the nature of humanity and society have tended to reinforce the view that war is inevitable. One of the few philosophers who have seriously considered lasting peace is Immanuel Kant. Kant's program for peace rests on three definitive articles, Republican governments, a federation of free states and hospitality, as he calls it, or open immigration. Kant's prescription is characteristically broad and legalistic, although his call for hospitality would seem to aspire to the kind of international amity espoused by Thomas Aquinas. To be sure, the securing of peace perpetual would require more than law. Even more important would be the change to take place in the hearts of men and women. In her classic, A Strategy for Peace, Human Values, and the Threat of War, philosophy Philosopher Cicela Bach devotes a chapter to von Clausewitz, presenting him as a professional soldier who combines skepticism about the possibility of limiting war or ending it forever with realism about the awfulness of armed conflict as he had experienced it. Bach points out that by the time Kant's perpetual peace appeared in 1795, the 15-year-old Clausewitz had seen two years of war with France. His experience combined with a brilliant intellect had given him great insight into the nature of war. But at the same time, his immersion in that reality, perhaps along with an, an element of trauma, had limited his ability to see a way out of war. Bach suggests that a synthesis of Clausewitz and Kant might yield an approach to peace that is both informed and imaginative. Clausewitzian ideas of friction and the superiority of the defense point out the futility of much armed conflict, an idea borne out by the events of our time the hollow victories of the American invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, for example. Bach calls for the same boldness and planning that have characterized the operations of the most successful military commanders being put to the service of peace. In seeking peace, the officer may be fueled by patriotism and by identification with other nations and peoples gained through experience. She may be inspired by feelings of comradeship that in effect begin with the military unit but do not end there, extending to embrace all people of goodwill. She may be open to the possibility of fundamental change by training and exposure to the protean nature of war and other forms of conflict. As an organizer, he has experience in marshalling people and resources towards a common goal. As a warfighter, 
she has learned to restlessly seek solutions in the most daunting of circumstances. In, in Ingmar Bergman's film, The Seventh Seal, the Swedish knight, Antonius Block, played by Max von Sydow, comes home burdened with sa by sadness and guilt over his crusade. He finds that home is not a secure refuge, but is on the point of social collapse due to plague. He eventually saves a young couple and their child by distracting death at chess. He's able to pull this off because he's a soldier who sees clearly the approach of death and defeat, who has been trained to think as a tactician, and who loves and who values the love he sees holding the family together, giving them a better chance of survival and maybe more right to survive than the other travelers. His determination to act, to continue to fight, even to the moment of his death, shows off what is perhaps the military leader's crowning capability, which is our willingness to constantly adapt to learn new ways of thinking. A former officer might switch from military pursuits to peace and conflict studies. She could bring a highly personal, professional perspective to this multidisciplinary field. A senior fellowship with the Carnegie Council, the New York-based Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs, and attendance at a 2018 peacebuilding conference at the Peace Palace in The Hague, Netherlands, has constituted my own experience in the area of peace studies. I've gained an appreciation for the many organizations dedicated to the maintenance of peace. Most of these groups rely heavily on volunteers and budgets that are meager in comparison to the amount spent every year on defense and weaponry. My background as a military officer has been valuable to my new role as peacemaker, granting to me a sense of history and the sometimes unspoken motives why nations and pe people go to war, the appeals of conflict. Next section, an officer's dreams. Not all of what goes on inside an officer's head comes under the heading of conscious thought. He has feelings too, an unconscious mind, and an individual mental backdrop. His continuing changing chorus of assumptions and conditioning of anxieties and aspirations. In Life and Fate, Vasily Grossman says of the Russian tank corps commander Novikov on the morning of battle, quote, he wasn't thinking about any of these things, unquote, that is of tanks and artillery, communications, his long absent lover, and his memories of the first day of the war, but they were all of them inside him. The things we wish for and love are sometimes referred to as dreams, as if they were related to the literal dreams we all experience asleep, as perhaps they are. In his original study, The Innocence of Dreams, Charles Rykoft departs from the conventional pathologic understanding of dreams to claim their innocence, their, universal, their universality and naivete. For Rycroft, dreams are an expression of the sleeping imagination. His framing of dreams is liter literary rather than clinical. For an imagery of dreaming, he quotes from the G.M. Hopkins poem, The Windhover. Like the bird of the title, the dreamer is borne along as if by the wind on flights of imagination that seem to come from far away, but which he can in effect control, catching the wings to swoop and soar. It is perhaps particularly good that soldiers dream, or we might have more to bedevil us during the day. Sigmund Freud, perhaps the leading interpreter of dreams, found his original theories challenged when he spoke to veterans of World War I. Freud had thought that dreams expressed hopes and anxieties about the future, but he found that many war veterans dreamed repeatedly of traumatic experiences in war, often the death of comrades or near escapes from their own death. The veterans often woke from these dreams in a state of terror, but during the day they did not experience fear as if it had been exercised. Dreams may function as a protective measure, processing at night feelings that a man cannot face in the day. An officer's dreams may replay his service in strange but recognizable ways. Dreams may seem to correct or affirm what has happened. I dream of my military service often. Uh, it sometimes seems to me the dreams are about unfinished business. One lengthy, detailed, remembered dream was of a nationwide mobilization. Even old retirees like me were being uh, called up and sent into action. I remember a squat, antiquated army vehicle clanking along, symbol of my own obsolescence. Then I was talking to another Marine, saying that I expected to move up soon, and I expect to meet my son in the front lines. Oh no, he said, those guys are coming back. Suddenly my son Devin appeared and my dream ended with joy at seeing him safe. As part of a project of self-understanding, an officer should try to understand her dreams, whether literal or figurative, hopeful, fearful, or otherwise instructive. It can be an interesting exercise to spend a period trying to recollect even write down the dreams we have asleep. Such a practice can reveal hidden hopes and anxieties, fueling the self-knowledge that every officer should seek. So my last section, the officer of the future. It is probably accurate to say 
that officer thought has evolved over time. Especially if we trace this development to the recorded origins of armed conflict, the thinking of those exercising leadership in war can be seen to follow several courses of development. Like other forms of evolution, this development has not been a steady course of improvement or simply survival of the fittest. Bad ideas have sometimes prospered while better ones were neglected or, or ridiculed. Thought on war has reacted to broad societal, cultural, and political change, to the nature of the wars being fought, the character of those who fought them, to scientific developments, and even, since life imitates art, to various depictions of the soldier, in writing especially. War and military leadership have variously been cast in religious, political, and literary terms. One form of evolution that has been constant and accelerating thanks to technology is the pace and physical scope of military operations. The most technically competent are not necessarily the most enlightened, however. In fact, technical competence and broad enlightenment may be seen to be in competition and to inhabit separate, sometimes mutually antipathetic cultures. When C.P. Snow gave his lecture on the separate cultures of science and the humanities in 1959, he was critical of the way that the sciences, sciences were neglected in education and derided by social elites. We may be in a period now where the opposite is true. This may be natural if not inevitable, consequence of the growing power of science and technology, their constant presence and importance in our lives. But the military culture must be one in which the virtues and benefits of the sciences and the humanities are fused. Science can provide the tools, but it cannot frame and express issues, merge cultures, move hearts and minds. Science can manage, but it can't lead. Technology also can distract as well as assist. In its address to West Point Plebes in 2009, titled Solitude and Leadership, William Derishowitz, I believe is how you pronounce his name, decried the influence of multitasking, a practice enabled by social media and other applications of computer technology on the ability of people to concentrate and therefore to think. Original and creative thought requires periods of time free from distractions and dedicated to the working out of difficult problems. Another challenge to officer cognition in the future concerns the nature of command. Although the concept and practice of command has evolved, it has remained essentially hierarchical. The hierarchical structure is inefficient in capitalizing on the combined talents and ideas of an organization. This continues to be a reason why some of the brightest young officers and non-coms and COs leave the service, but it is also why some armies fail. The best armies have always been those in which, which combine discipline with the ability to tap into the resourcefulness of their members. The challenge of creating forms of command that do this more effectively has been recognized by the U.S. Army. The Army's doctrinal publication, ADP 6 Tech O, Mission Command, details an approach to command that stresses disciplined initiative on the part of subordinates and calls for commanders to empower agile and adaptive leaders. Mission Command is a departure from the traditional prevailing American approach to command. While not relieving the commander of her responsibilities or authority, Mission Command, in effect, seeks to make better use of the abilities of subordinates. There is skepticism about the ability of the Army to execute mission command. Doctrine aside, does the Army have the culture and organization that will enable mission command over large staffs and a bureaucratic managerial approach to command impede its exercise? Going beyond mission command, a more cooperative and collegial approach to command and to military leadership could be part of an atmosphere of true professionalism, of special trust and confidence that extends in all directions in a web of command. Only very high professional standards and dedication can make this possible, but the accelerating rate of change and the hazards of the 21st century may make it imperative. Only a full harnessing of the adaptive and innovative resources of a military organization may be enough to meet these challenges. Technology, the two cultures, and changes in the nature of command are only some of the issues facing the modern officer. Another is that of the relevance of conventional military force the ability of conventional military forces to protect or deter against certain threats and to attain meaningful victory. Meaningful national security may have to come from closer partnerships with civil agencies. Such partnerships raise not only practical questions concerning interagency relations, but also legal and ethical issues. Since the start of the century, U.S. forces have developed an impressive counterinsurgency doctrine that places much emphasis on training and education on counterinsurgent operations. Still, success in the two major counterinsurgent operations in Iraq and Afghanistan has been elusive. Most recently, war by proxy seems to have gained favor with the campaign in Afghanistan being pursued by US, minimal US ground forces and diminishing to the point of zero maybe in, face, in favor of advisors, communications aspects, assets, and fire support. 
It may be that ground forces are being ushered back to their focus on conventional high-end combat as their primary role, although the U.S. has seen before the sorry consequence of a neglect of counterinsurgency training and doctrine. As Rosa Brooks argues in How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon, the world seems to be entering a period of nearly perpetual quasi-war, a gray zone between traditional notions of war and peace. Officers must adjust their thinking to this fact. With armed conflict pervasive, ongoing, and combined with activities of nation and alliance building, security, and cultural exchange, officers must increase their range of expertise. Contact is all. Armed force and the other means of policy may be so close that they can only be taken in once, taken in and understood at once. Given a long enough historical memory and an eye for some of the neglected corridors of military, social, and diplomatic history, this is not entirely new. But the scale and seeming permanence of the gray zone are likely going to be a central global fact of life in the 21st century. In a manner not seen since the advent of the nation state in the 17th century, and perhaps not in a thousand years. In different ways, these developments raise and will continue to raise fundamental questions about the relationship of the officer corps and armed forces with the society they, they protect. The military profession plays a broad role in society, both historically and as a species of moral obligation. The officer corps may be said to collectively function as the superego to humankind's, hu humankind's enduring id, to the nightmare of force and violence from which humanity cannot seem to wake. Between these two is the ego, the individual officer with her capabilities, imagination, insecurities, dreams, and desires. In the future, the officer corps more than ever may have to both defend that was worth preserving in a society while also embodying important values that of service, perhaps most particularly. Whatever changes are in store, some constants remain. The officer will be tasked to think in circumstances that impede and even seem to defy clear thought. Despite fatigue and fear, setback and disillusionment, dry with rage and extreme toil, as Shakespeare has Hotspur say, the officer, sometimes the lone officer, will have to keep his head and the faith, maybe when all about him are losing theirs, while avoiding the hubris and self-righteousness that sometimes seems to be an unfortunate accompaniment of a military career. Clear, creative, and principled thought under great stress is the officer's forte. The subject of officer thought needs increased attention from educators, mentors, and commanders, although also on the part of the individual officers taking charge of their own evolving ability to think as military professionals. The pursuit of what I've been calling visionary thought has potential to make the career and practice of officership more intellectually stimulating, richer, emo richer emotionally, even ennobling, perhaps fulfilling the expectations we had on entering military service. And it could also afford us the uh, ability to, to recruit and to retain more of the best and brightest, more of the most, most committed, committed and idealistic soldiers. To address the subject of officer cognition fully means not neglecting our mundane, personal, and professional obligations. But sometimes it requires that we raise our aim. To think well, an officer has to love what she does. She has to love the work, the service, at least some of the people, her country, and the broad ideals that are represented by the oath and the uniform. Without this, her thinking will never have the interest and motivation that her role requires. With it, her, thought, her thoughts have wings, and her service never ends. I thank you for your attention. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, we do have time for a few more questions and answers. Uh, I'd like to start it off. Uh, we've had uh, several questions come in over the internet, uh, and I'm going to push two of them together for you, sir, okay. um, with, a, with a request to talk a little bit uh, about how um, thoughts on any additional or more rigorous ethics requirements for our non-commissioned officers. The second question is very similar that you might address at the same time is, do you see any adjustments uh, for, uh, for the code you have and the discussion you've made uh, for senior NCOs or uh, even NCOs in general? Yeah, okay. I, I've, been, I've been challenged on, okay, why are you only talking about officers? Uh, uh, I do address officers. I feel they are, they are a group which has... Uh, its own, its own role and function in determining military culture. Um, and and a, a, another reason for me to, to focus on the officer ranks, and I talk about this more in, in, in the book, didn't have much time for it tonight, is, is sort of the idea of raising all boats. Um, I don't know if, 
how many of you were aware of this, what was going on, but a few years ago in the Marine Corps, there was a fair amount of talk about what was being called the gap. And this was kind of a cognitive gap between uh, how officers thought and how uh, non-commissioned officers thought, to include, to include staff non-commissioned officers. And I was actually at a conference with a large group of uh, very uh, experienced, a lot of gun time, uh, uh, non-commissioned officers, which provided some, some interesting illustrations of how, that, of how that functioned. And at this point also, more uh, NCOs and staff NCOs were being exposed to sort of officer-like PME, so they started to understand, gee, I've been in the service all this time, and, and yet no one has ever before now taught me to think in, to think in this way. And I, I, I feel sort of like I've been slighted because not enough attention has been paid. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, and I, I say somewhere in the book, we have uh, a relatively small professional military. Is it, is it too much? as uh, some other militaries have done in the past, to think that uh, we want uh, uh, all of our NCOs to be able to think sort of on the officer level, all non-rated people, as they're called in the Marine Corps, E1 through E3, to be able to think on the non-commissioned officer level that we, uh, you know, we, raise, we raise people up as a potential for the next, uh, for the next step that they, uh, that they might be taking, although movement between the officer ranks, the enlisted ranks is somewhat, is, is more limited than, say, movement within the two groups, respectively. But still, I think the idea of, uh, the idea of, of, of raising all boats and, uh, is, uh, uh, is, is an interesting one. And uh, by the way, one of the ways in which uh, it seemed like non-commissioned non officers were thinking more in the, in the particular exercise that I was exposed to as disciplinarians than as tacticians. They, they, they didn't quite have the same sort of tactical mindset that most officers had. So their solution to a, uh, a problem of some kind tended to focus more on its disciplinary aspects rather than on tactical success. So this was just one example of, uh, of, of, of how that works. And, and as far as you know, getting more rigorous about um, uh, the ethical requirements, I, 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 as I've suggested before, sort of think on my feet about this one here, but I, I think there needs to be a, a combination of both. I think there needs to be a combination of some bright line ethical standards, and then I think we also need to involve people in discussion of these standards and what their implications are and why they are important and why, they, and why uh, soldiers at every level need to be trying to stand up for these things among their among their fellow soldiers and and exhibiting them when they're when they're with civilians in public uh, uh, things like that. So I hope that I hope that addresses the uh, uh, double barrel question from uh, the internet audience. Thank you, sir. Do we have any questions uh, here in the room? All right, we've got another question coming from uh, uh, from the internet. Uh, oh, it looks like we've been too still again. There we go. Um, so this one, uh, I'm, I'm going to actually read it directly from the email. Uh, Sir, given what you have said about the inflexibility of hierarchy and the need to maintain discipline while accessing the potential of every serviceman and woman, do you think we need to reassess the rigid relationship between officer and enlisted? Hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, I think, you know, discipline, I'm... I'm Trying to remember now a quotation from from SLA Marshall and uh, uh, sort of the, the hierarchy of how discipline takes takes place. And uh, I think that I think that some people think that uh, your your morale comes of discipline. That discipline is sort of the first task, and then and then your your morale or your kind of emotional attachment to the military unit and your comrades is. Uh, uh, is secondary or comes next. I think that, that on the contrary, it's, it's better understood that true discipline comes of the soldier's or Marine's attachment to her unit. And, you know, because we are, we are trying to inculcate uh, 
speaking for the ground force particularly, although I think this also applies to the, uh, to the Air Force and the, and the Navy, we're trying to inculcate the kind of discipline that isn't just the kind of orders taking discipline of, you know, private, go and, go and do this, go and uh, draw 15 lunch boxes from the mess hall and bring them back, you know, you know just, just simple following orders. We, we want people who are, are acting in a disciplined way that permits them to, to think and sometimes to show to show initiative and to and to demonstrate in their in their own way how uh, their attachment to the military unit. One of the, one of the things I used to love here in like a uh, in, in the Marine Corps, you would sometimes hear a uh, uh, a 19-year-old corporal or lance corporal refer to my Marine Corps. You know, uh, uh, you know, not my Marine Corps, and and uh, and mean it. Too. This, this this kid, you know, with a, you know a couple years of service, but but he viewed himself as a dues-paying partner member of the firm. The Marine Corps belonged to him, and it was and it was his uh, 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 responsibility to uphold the standards as as he saw them. And sometimes they may have been mistaken or idiosyncratic, but. Uh, but still, that, 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 that sort of buy-in, I think, is what we're really looking for, not just the top-down hierarchy of the captain tells the lieutenant, lieutenant tells the sergeant, the sergeant tells everybody else. That's, uh, that, 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 that can be important, too, but I, I don't think that that, again, the, the emphasis on, on discipline that you get sometimes when you get a bunch of NCOs together, that's not the, that's not the kind of discipline that wins wars and battles. All right, folks, we've got time for one more question. Anybody here? All right, we'll take the last one from the internet then. Uh, so this, I think, is a good one to, uh, to finish us off with. Um, calling back to some of the comments from, uh, from before the, uh, the questions in the middle of the talk, uh, and then some, some material you put out since. Uh, thoughts on lifelong ethical requirements for officers, past retirement, past separation, uh, those lifelong ethical requirements and how they relate to what you've already discussed tonight. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that goes to my, my last line about the idea of, of uh, service never ending. I, I, I think that, that ideally, not just being an officer, but, but being a military veteran should, should put in you uh, a lifetime commitment to continue to serve in some way. That you have been given, you've been given the tools, you've been given the mindset for service, and uh, you know some veterans, frankly, go out there with a sense of entitlement, uh, and now they ask, well, well, what's in it for me? Or you know, bend down and, and kiss my ring because I'm a military veteran, and 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 you're not. I expect a lot of a lot of privilege or, or a deferment out of that. I mean, you know, maybe a certain amount of that is inevitable, but but the. Uh, uh, the, the, the prevailing mindset should be that, that when I was in the service, I was taught to be a servant of the Republic and of others, and of, and, and of certain, certain high ideals that were, that were inculcated in me during that period of time. And, and uh, uh, there's a line from an old Marine Corps retraining film that the, these things continue to burn through in your life and in your work, uh, that uh, you uh, uh, continue to be guided by that. Uh, it was General Barrow, the Marine Corps Commandant, when I was a lieutenant or a captain, who said that his uh, his senior drill instructor had lit a fire underneath him and had never gone out. Uh, I, I think that's the kind of uh, that's what we that's what we would like from from all uh, from all veterans. And, and and if we could we could exhibit if we could exhibit that as a body, I think one thing that would happen is those those numbers. Uh, for uh, you know, America's respect for the military would start to uh, start to go back up uh, and 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 peg and stay there. Well, sir, thank you so much for the presentation tonight. Before we break up here, I'd like to uh, invite Colonel Rob Harmon, the Deputy Director here at the AHEC, to say a few words. Hey, sir. I just uh, before I get started with the formal thanks, you know. We first met this earlier this evening. The first thing you said was, hey, did you get done, just get done doing PT? So I knew from that point that this session was going to be pretty good. Okay. Um, but on behalf of Major General Hill and Sergeant Major Flom, 
um, and the group in here and also the virtual group. Thank you very much for taking the time, but also for the invaluable information you just shared with us. Um, on, and on behalf of USA HEC and the Army War College, you're just a small token of our appreciation for you for you uh, your presentation tonight and coming up here for us. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is an integral part of the U.S. Army War College and maintains the knowledge repositories that support scholarship and research about the U.S. Army and its operating environment. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about past and upcoming events.